Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I'm your host, Patrick Beeman. Today's question is brought to you by ExamGuru. ExamGuru is the only question bank that started specifically to help students succeed on their shelf exams. I know it's a good quality product because I helped oversee its development. I don't currently work for them, but I know that using ExamGuru will help you succeed on your shelf exams. Pass your shelf exams guaranteed with ExamGuru, examguru.com. So here's today's question. A 26-year-old medical student becomes anxious when a friend asks him how he will be able to pay back his student loans of $250,000. He says, I don't even want to think about that, and changes the subject, noting that he has an appointment with a financial advisor next month. Afterwards, he takes a walk around the block and then studies for the rest of the night. Which of the following defense mechanisms did he exhibit? A. Denial B. Humor C. Introjection D. Repression E. Suppression You may want to pause the podcast here for a second while you think about that. And the answer is suppression. We chose today's question because of our interview with Pamela Weibel. Um, the focus of today's show is a little bit different than the usual. We had Pamela come on to talk a little bit about uh, medical student and physician mental health. And like all board questions, it seems when discussing social anxiety, depression, and various other mental health conditions, medical students often show up in the vignette. Perhaps this is the board's own way of uh, using the defense mechanism of humor. <laughs> At any rate, so what is suppression? Suppression is one of the Freudian defense mechanisms that uh, show up from time to time on step one, step two, and the psychiatry shelf exams, and you have to know them. Suppression is when a thought is intentionally but temporarily removed from the consciousness, that is consciously choosing not to think an anxiety-provoking thought at a particular time. Obviously, the circumstance or the situation that is causing the anxiety still exists, but the person, in essence, psychologically overcomes it by choosing intentionally not to think about it. The defense mechanism that is probably most often confused with suppression when it comes to exam questions is repression. So how do you distinguish suppression from repression? The distinguishing factor between suppression and repression is the consciousness of the choice. In suppression, one consciously chooses to put the thought out of one's mind. In repression, the displacement of the anxiety-provoking thought is unconscious. So let's take each of these in turn. A. Denial. Probably the most common example of this on exam questions is with respect to getting bad news. For instance, informing a family member that a loved one has died or informing somebody of a serious diagnosis. Telling Mrs. Smith that she has cancer, if her response is, no, I don't, that is denial. In this example, if the medical student with his $250,000 of loans went around and said, no, nah, that's not true, I, I don't have that, and instead went out and bought a, a brand new Mercedes-Benz, um, that could be looked at as a form of denial and 
and lived his or her life like the reality of paying those loans back would never come to be, that would be an example of denial. Humor, another of the mature defense mechanisms, would be to talk about, for example, that $250,000 loan in a way that helps relieve the tension of its reality. So as the fourth year goes to sign up for another $50,000 loan, and upon putting the pen to the promissory note, was like, yeah, what's another $50,000? And gets a chuckle out of his fellow students or uh, the people around him. That would be an example of using humor. Introjection is the absorption of a psychological construct into one's own self-image. So if this medical student were rotating through a dermatology rotation and all of a sudden started dressing and talking and buying the same car as the attending in order to sort of be like that person or imitate them, that would be an example of introjection. Repression, as we mentioned before, is the unconscious avoidance of an anxiety-provoking thought. So on an exam, so if the medical student were asked about his loans and every time the subject came up, he unconsciously changed the subject or conveniently and unconsciously forgot to look at his loan statements, that would be more of an example of repression. Suppression, it's all about the consciousness, saying, I don't even want to think about that. These defense mechanisms, as posited by Freud, are meant to protect the ego. So here's the takeaway from this discussion. Suppression, repression, and denial are three defense mechanisms that are often confused. Suppression occurs when there is a conscious choice to defer thinking about an anxiety-provoking thought. Repression occurs when one unconsciously avoids thinking the anxiety-provoking thought. And denial occurs when one unconsciously is unable to accept the reality of the anxiety-provoking thought. If there's a conscious choice involved, the answer is going to be suppression. If there is an unconscious avoidance of the anxiety-provoking thought, you have to ask yourself, is the person still aware of the reality of the anxiety-provoking provoking stimulus? If the answer is yes, they still grant that they have $250,000 of debt, for instance, the answer is going to be repression. If instead, if they live in a way that doesn't give credence to the existence of their $250,000 of debt, then the answer is denial. And I would like to say pay attention towards the middle of this interview where Pamela will talk about the National Day of Solidarity to prevent physician suicide. We lose an estimated 400 physicians, the equivalent of an entire medical school, to suicide every year. On August 20th, the medical community and cities around this country will join together in solidarity for those who have lost their lives to bring awareness and hopefully help to prevent this tragedy. Go to care2.com slash save doctors. That's care, the number two.com slash save doctors to get more info on your local community's day of solidarity to help prevent physician suicide. Vigils are being held in Athens, Dublin, and Cleveland, Ohio, Austin, Texas, Chicago, Illinois, Harrogate, Tennessee, Kansas City, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, Middletown, New York, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. Today on the Inside the Boards podcast, I have a very special guest, Pamela Weibel. She is an author, family physician, and 
an advocate for the mental health of physicians and medical students. She's given a TED Talk. Um, a number of interviews has been featured in major news outlets, all on this uh, subject of the mental health of physicians. Uh, she's published a book, Physician Suicide Letters Answered, and it's with a very warm welcome that I say thanks for being on here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So the Inside the Boards podcast, we basically are just trying to offer some advice to students and physicians who are kind of in the thick of things as far as studying for exams and going through the whole journey of medical school. I'd like to get a little bit of advice from you and hear some of your wisdom. Um, so first, you're going to just have to tell us, where did you go to school? Where did you train? Well, I would say I sort of trained under my parents because they're both physicians and I went to work with them when I was young. So I, I got some really great training, um, really very far in advance of actually applying to medical school. But when I when I did attend medical school, it was the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, which is where my mom went to medical school. And um, then I did my residency in family medicine at University of Arizona in Tucson. And I've been practicing in Eugene, Oregon, essentially ever since. Okay. Now, what turned your career from just being a sort of assembly line physician, as I've seen you call it, to somebody who spends what seems to be a lot of your time advocating for the mental health of medical students and doctors? I suffered with my own mental health issues first in medical school during the very first year I found the training to be extremely barbaric and backwards. Um, just it felt like I went back into the 17th century or something. It was really bizarre. And 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 actually, I did because uh, the basis of modern medical education is a 17th century philosophy of reductionism, which sees us as just really interesting machines. Um, you know, a bunch of fascinating organs and a sack of skin. And it's very dehumanizing to have the basis of modern medical education be this um, antiquated philosophy that is extremely damaging to the human heart and soul, which is what drives most of us into medicine. That's a spiritual calling. It's not like we, oops, by accident, really meant to do real estate or banking or, you know, have a career like that. <laughs> we Ever since many of us, ever since we were five years old, we wanted to be a doctor and help people and to find out once we're in medical school that the training is so barbaric, it's really, it's really very painful. And so I was in a major depression in my first year of medical school and things got a lot better after first year. I mean, second year was also very challenging. But once I was with patients third and fourth year, um, you know, my eyes lit up and I was on fire and excited because I'm a, I'm a people person, you might notice. <laughs> Like being around people and sitting, you know, uh, years on end in a library memorizing minutia to just regurgitate it on exams really seems kind of irrelevant after a certain point. So, so anyway, that was my medical school experience. And after that, I was, you know, I loved my residency. I had a great time there and I was very excited, gung ho to get going in my first job after residency. And I found that it was really felt like I was just on an assembly line that the only reason they wanted me there is to generate revenue for this huge machine. Um, they really, it felt to me, could care less about whether I was healthy or happy or whether the patients were even healthy or happy. As long as they weren't getting sued and I was generating a lot of revenue for them, uh, that seemed to be the only objective. 
in fact, you know, you can't really help people very much in these five minute office visits. So, you know, assembly line medicine, again, is damaging to the human spirit of both the patient and the physician, and probably very damaging to the human physical health of both. And so I became after I kept thinking, oh, well, maybe it's better at another employment uh, office or clinic or hospital. And so I tried six jobs in 10 years and they were all pretty much assembly line medicine, which made me fall into a feeling suicidal myself. I just couldn't believe that I had basically spent the majority of my life in school to get this education so that I could help people. And I was duped, you know, in the end, I was injured and depressed, and suicidal and could not figure out how to practice medicine in the United States in a way that was sane and healing. And so my personal experience with being suicidal, the way I was able to come out of that is I had this epiphany one day that if the patients aren't happy and the physicians aren't happy, because when I looked around, they really weren't, maybe I should just put the patients in charge and let them design their own clinic. And so I literally jumped out of bed, led nine town hall meetings over a period of six weeks, collected 100 pages of written testimony, adopted 90% of what my community wanted, wanted, and I opened a clinic, the first in the country, designed completely by the patients. And I've been super happy ever since. So I, I take it you don't have a lot of five-minute office visits on the schedule. Oh, no, 30 to 60 minutes. It's great. It's really. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that uh, kind of personal take on things. Um, I think that a lot of probably what contributes to the stigmatization of uh, mental health in general, but especially in particular in medicine, is the fact that people who have these experiences with the literature showing they're probably more prevalent amongst those in our profession or training in our profession they don't really speak about personal experiences for a number of different reasons, which I think we'll probably get into a little more later. But I guess one thing, since uh, Inside the Boards is kind of a board preparation-focused uh, company, when you went to med school, do you think that your board exam study culture, if you will, the kind of importance attached to good scores and needing to do on tests, the competition... Do you think that contributed at all to your own personal feelings of depression? No, that, that did not contribute at all to my personal feelings of depression. What contributed mostly to my feelings of depression was um, seeing that in our physiology lab, I was supposed to murder a dog in order to finish my first year training. And if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be able to start my second year. And so, yeah, just the brutality of killing animals in medical school, I found that to be really sick. And obviously, I was right, because all medical Schools have banned this practice in the last 20 years. But yeah, that's barbaric. And to force somebody who's a sensitive person that wants to be a healer to murder like an, a, someone's previous pet. I mean, this is the sickness that goes on in medical training. Yeah. I mean, who speaks about that? That's what psychopaths do. That's what serial killers do. They start by killing your pets. You know, it's ridiculous. And do you think overall things are getting better for medical students who are going through training? Well, as far as being asked to participate in dog labs, it's certainly better, but I think it's worse in that there's pressures on medical students now with high volume practices and they're all they all seem to be getting funneled into these assembly line jobs and they don't really get really very good mentorship. The physicians in general are suffering more now. They're under a lot of pressure and these are the people that are 
training our medical students. So they all seem to be in this hot pot together. And then there's still no mental health care services for the most part that are being utilized with a sense of safety among medical students. I mean, sometimes schools do have uh, wellness centers and, and, and they've hired counselors, but students still don't feel safe to use them. So there's that environment of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're still steeped in a fear-based training model. Yeah. Very antiquated. Yeah. So if you if you had a medical student who um, was sort of experiencing these these feelings of depression and dehumanization or or even abuse as you, I've seen you call it in articles you've written, what advice would you give them? They're just sitting there alone, studying, thinking about what have I got myself into? It's nothing like what I had hoped it would be when I planned my whole life around pursuing this profession. First and most important is for them to realize that they are having the normal human reaction that anyone would have to a sick medical education system. Dehumanization is not normal and no human being should have to go through a dehumanization process. And so... They're having the normal grief, sadness, anger, whatever depression that anyone would feel if they were placed in a similar environment. And so it's very important, though they're isolated and studying in their little cubicle, it's very important for them to know they are not alone, that their feelings are normal, and that the system is sick. I'm sure not everybody agrees with you. And if you present this kind of... um framework of medical education being dehumanizing or abusive, which I think a lot of medical professionals who've gone through it, myself included, would have a tendency to agree with you. How would you meet the objection, I guess, that maybe administrators or others would say, well, it's not dehumanizing, it is rigorous in order to cultivate objectivity? Well, there's a difference between rigorous and dehumanizing. I think these people have proven themselves as hardworking, very intelligent, compassionate, resilient people, or they would have never made it into medical school. So these are not people that are wanting to be slackers. They're they're wanting to do the work. They're just not wanting to be called idiots, stupid, have scalpels thrown at them, bullying, okay? They don't want to be bullied. They don't need to be sleep deprived. Let's just face it, every other industry, pilots, truck drivers have limits on the number of hours they can be awake. You, I don't think you or I would want to board a plane with a pilot who has not slept in 36 hours, who's been called an idiot, who um, has been hypoglycemic all day because no access to food and is constipated, you know, might be suicidal. Not a really good idea. These beautiful, intelligent people are sent to medical school and they have their spirits crushed. And these schools should be embarrassed that they're doing this to people in 2016. And not all schools are doing this. Some schools are much better. And I mean, I don't want to make across the board blanket statements, but I hear from medical students every day who are being mistreated. And this needs to be taken seriously because these are human rights violations. If you look at the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, I mean, I'm not making this up. I'm not jumping to the conclusion that this is abuse. These behaviors, Article 5 and I think Article 24, expand on exactly what's going on in medical training. These articles are being broken in the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and other countries get in big, big trouble for this. So why are we allowing medical schools and hospitals in first world countries to treat their own people this way? 
Do you have a, a recent example of maybe something a medical student shared with you um, a, about an experience that you could say illustrates this kind of abuse? A lot of them. I mean, the sleep deprivation, I think that's easy for everyone to understand, sure. you know, because we've all experienced it. And I think every, you know, person on the planet could agree that sleep deprivation is in nobody's benefit. And it's actually a culture technique. So I, I think, you know, when people call me, and they tell me, for example, a medical student recently told me she had not, she has a like a two or three year old daughter. She has not, it was Wednesday when she contacted me. She hadn't seen her daughter since Sunday because she was on call for some outrageous amount of time, had to send her daughter to go live with another relative or some, I don't know where the daughter was, but she couldn't obviously have the daughter under her care. And she just, you know, missed seeing her daughter, which I think we should all have the right to see our children every once in a while, like maybe every day, like other people. I think that's too much to ask that somebody would not see their own child in four or five days. Okay? I totally agree. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And then, let's see, what else? I mean, there, there's a lot that I've heard. You know, we're having a candlelight vigil on October. Uh, on August 20th. I don't know if you've heard about that. All across the country, candlelight vigils to basically for solidarity and to bring awareness to the medical student and physician suicide issue and show support for one another. Mm -hmm. They're all across, you know, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Ohio, and just got off the phone with one of the people who's organizing one of these events. She was recently told that the medical students were threatened not to attend these events. Hmm. I think that's outrageous. By their administrative? By the school. They don't want to see them in solidarity trying to prevent medical student suicide, you know, by holding a candle in a public park or something. Sure. I mean, that's highly invasive. And these schools are also telling these students to shut down their Facebook pages, all sorts of social media. I mean, that is, it's just ridiculous that these people can't be normal, yeah. you know? I mean, they're like responsible adults who want to do a good job in life. They're not bad people. You know, they've already <laughs> creme de la creme. They've already proven themselves academically and in many other ways. Right. And so to basically treat them like bad kindergartners and to bully them and have a situation where a woman can't see her own toddler for five days, I think it's outrageous. These schools should be absolutely ashamed of their behavior. How might uh, schools fix this problem? Well, I think the most important, you know, a lot of people write me and they ask me, what can I do? I want to help. It's really very simple. If you want to help, the only thing you need to do, and this is my instruction for administrators at medical schools, is um, tell the truth. Yeah. That's it. That's all I'm asking people to do. If you've had a medical student suicide at your school, just tell the truth. Have some sort of a service where the other students can come and grieve together. Don't just blow it off and act like Joe's not coming back to class and we don't know why. I just started a support group, by the way, for parents who've lost their children in medical school to suicide. Mm -hmm. We just had our first teleconference call. You know, it's heartbreaking with a capital H to hear these people. You know, one, Cheryl Petro just lost her only child in medical school in May. Wow. Her only child. This is horrible. I know a lot of people think, oh, Pamela Weibel, she's using harsh language, and oh, it can't really be that bad. It's like, well, spend a little time on the phone with somebody who lost their only child in medical school. This needs to be dealt with quickly. 
and, and, and with some seriousness. And it's, it's not given the attention, you know, a yearly symposium to show a PowerPoint is not the solution to this. This is requiring action and telling the truth, right? Yeah. So what I mean by that is like, what's the body count? I mean, we obviously know how many medical students are registered in U.S. medical schools this year and how many paid tuition. And you could ask any medical school and they've got all the numbers down. But suddenly, if somebody doesn't show up for class and they've died by suicide, like we don't know that that happened. And nobody's counting these bodies. If this were an infectious disease, we'd have a body count and be on the evening news every night. Yeah, like Zika virus or uh, other uh, epidemics that have recently broken out. They get a lot of press. Yeah, they do. I think it's interesting in, in looking at just a, a little bit of the literature on this subject. Uh, physicians, as we are one, have a tendency to kind of academize uh, certain topics. And in 2006, in academic medicine, there was a systematic review of depression, anxiety, and, quote, other indicators of psychological distress among U.S. and Canadian medical students. This was uh, April of 2006. The results of the study showed that there's a high prevalence of depression, anxiety amongst medical students, no surprise, with the levels of overall psychological distress consistently higher than in the general population for age match peers by the later years of training. And then, quote, limited data were available regarding the causes of student distress and its impact on academic performance, dropout rates, and professional development. Having gone through medical school, I I feel like those uh, sentiments, that conclusion is kind of a no-duh, and the, the data that is there is, is overwhelming. But I think probably in the 2005-ish, mid-part you know part of that decade, a lot of interest grew towards this topic. You know, what are the, the causes of student distress and, and its various effects? By 2008, I remember myself, I was on call at a rural health elective that was required by my school. And um, I had to travel about an hour and 20 minutes and then stay at the rotation site away from my two kids and family. And it was Friday at 7 p.m. or so. And I thought the week was over. That was the expectation that I had had and that I was given by my school that our weekends would be free, or at least most of them, or at least the courtesy of having a schedule. I told the attending at the time that I was headed back to Toledo, where I trained. And he looked at me with the (laughs) most disapproving glance I've ever had from an attending and said, no, you're not. If I work, you work. And he was on call three out of the four weeks um, straight um, that I was on that rotation. Therefore, I did not get to go home and see my kids. And during that time, I myself started to have some of the, the feelings that you expressed. And I found an article from the New England Journal, October 2008, uh, which really shocked me. That was sort of a landmark piece that showed that uh, signs of depression uh, amongst medical students uh, are upwards of 50% at least, um, with 25% of medical students reporting having suicidal ideation and 10% reporting having active suicidal ideation. And I thought to myself at 2 a.m. as I read this article waiting to scrub for yet another emergency appendectomy. Wow, I think I'm depressed too. Um, after that, I ended up going to seek some help for a school's uh, psychiatrist, and uh, I'm sure glad I did. But 
I guess if we look at that statement from the first article I mentioned, speaks of student distress and its impact on academics, you can Google medical student in depression. Tons and tons and tons of online anonymous forum posts will come up with uh, just here's an example from the forum at a, a major Q bank. A poster wrote, so I got my score from step one. Thursday morning, I woke up, I logged into my score report, saw the big fail, and I threw up. To numb this pain, I've turned to alcohol and marijuana hardcore. And this person was replied to, I feel your pain. I've had a similar experience. And I was thinking about quitting life altogether. Do you think that that sentiment or that response to failing a test, if you just say it in isolation, doesn't seem that life altering? Why do students attach such importance to some of these standardized tests in medical school such that they, they, they might become depressed or even suicidal if they fail? because there's not enough residency slots for them. And so anyone who is straying from the usual trajectory of passing all their classes and passing all their tests automatically stands out as somebody who might not get a residency, which then will make your 300,000 plus school loans. You'll, you'll not be able to pay them back because you'll be sitting there not being, you, you won't even be able to practice medicine because without at least an internship year, you can't practice medicine. So yeah, failing a test when you've got $300,000 on the line and, you know, you've wanted to do this since you were five and you've been basically sitting in a library while everyone else is partying and having fun your age and getting married and buying houses and having kids, that would probably make me want to throw up too. Granted. And what would you tell a student who had failed? What would your response to be not knowing anything about their mental state of health or ill health? If you found out they failed, would you say this person's at a higher risk of developing depression or, or suicidal ideation or completed suicide even? Definitely adds to the mix. Yeah, I do think it increases their risk, especially because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of support for anyone who strays from the usual trajectory that the school wants you on. I mean, I guess the school really wants to have an aggregate great scores and everyone passing. And, you know, so now you become not only as a perfectionist, do you judge yourself harshly, but the school kind of sees you as a problem that, that like a blemish on their record, right? Yeah. And then you might not get a residency. And then you're not given a whole heck of a lot of support. Like nobody comes up to you and says, you know, you are a really bright person. You, you know, we're so glad to have you here. You know, I, I've had somebody who told me like she, she had to take this exam right after her mother died and they wouldn't let her delay it. So she's like grieving the death of her mother. And some people are not even, even able to go to funerals of close family members without the school threatening them with being delayed a year or, you know, they can't even take off for the funeral of their favorite grandfather or their like best friend from college. I mean, the sort of thing anyone else could do who isn't a doctor or yeah, I want to add that to the list of I think there are exceptionally cruel things to do to people. Yeah. But I mean, surely they have to be exceptional. Maybe 10% of medical schools present a, a policy like that. It, it can't be the majority, right? Well, I have no idea. I just hear it frequently enough that it's like, 
sad. And I don't know whether it comes from the medical school themselves. I'm sure they'd never agree to announce that anywhere. It could come because they're with a particularly malignant surgeon that month. Yeah. Who says, no, you're not just like you heard. You thought you were off for the weekend, but no, not the guy with Stockholm syndrome that had control of your evaluation that month. Yep. (laughs) So I guess uh, one of the interesting things that, that I've seen in reading some of your articles has been uh, the idea, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it isn't just students who are you know, academically, quote, at risk, who turn to suicide, kind of the worst manifestation, depression. And uh, am I correct in that? It's it's it affects oh, you everyone. Are absolutely correct. Yes, there there. I think there's a certain subset of people that are hit pretty hard. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with their test scores because, you know, for example, Greg Midday, you might have read about him. I, I write a lot about his death. You know, he was he's a guy that never really even had to study and made straight A's on all his tests. Right. And he basically spent his time helping other people pass their tests. You know, a bad test score was was not anything that he ever had to suffer with. And yet he had some anxiety. I think he had like a little social anxiety. Mm-hmm which probably predated medical school. And so he, he was not able to get the services that he needed to help him with, um, with the alcohol problem that he had, that he, you know, he used alcohol to help him with anxiety. And, uh, he was, the treatment he received was highly punitive and not so helpful, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of mandating everyone into these 12 step programs, 300 miles out of town where you're now out of sequence with your entire medical school class or residency class. Anyway, it's just the environment is really toxic for people who have mental health needs of any sort, whether it's attending a funeral and grieving a family member, or, you know, maybe that you're using alcohol as a crutch to deal with some of the stress from school or, you know, there's just no compassion for these people. And I think when you, to mention the people who I think are hardest hit, I do think people who are existential thinkers who are like super compassionate empath type people, you know, that are not necessarily, I mean, though, obviously Greg Madej is a linear thinker and able to do really well on tests and all of that. You know, he's a very creative person. I think people who are creative, big picture thinkers they don't tolerate well being stuck in a cubicle as a, as a cog in the wheel. And so, and, and people who are sensitive, I think the men who are sensitive, you know, women in general, I think it's harder on women than men. The, the people that I think it's easiest through medical school are maybe like these good old boys type of people who have like a large network of friends. Like back when my mom went to school, there were fraternities at our medical school and all the guys passed down the tests to the next year to their friends. And there was like this whole kind of good old boys club going on, which the women weren't privy to. (laughs) And so I think it's harder when you're on the outside as either a minority, a woman, or like a super sensitive, sweet man, not kind of like the big callous, let's go play golf type of a guy. I think those people end up getting mental health issues of various sorts, and some of them go down the path of playing around with the idea of suicide. Couldn't they just make an appointment with a psychiatrist, uh, make a doctor's appointment for their own um, personal health? Oh, yeah, they certainly could do that. I mean, I'll just tell you, in my case, my mom is a psychiatrist. (laughs) She's the one who damaged me, just kidding. Um, (laughs) My wife says psychiatry, so I think that's a perfectly acceptable joke. Thank you. 
you. <laughs> but in my particular case, I will tell you that it was the occupation itself that induced these suicidal thoughts in me. It's not like I was having relationship issues or other issues. I felt assaulted by the profession. And so I just came to the conclusion that if I were to seek help, I would certainly not seek help from within Western medicine because that was the system that injured me. How, how could people who are also injured by this system help me? I just came to this conclusion on my own. And so I have sought a lot of help over the years and I've had a lot of different therapists, but none of them have been psychiatrists. I've, you know, none of them have really followed like the standard Western model. But yeah, for sure, I highly recommend if anyone is under mental health stress or strain in any way, you should be reaching for help. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, somebody off the grid, there's a lot of people that just feel safer to pay cash and use a fake name and drive out of town or whether you feel like your your records are going to be confidential at your school and you're going to be able to safely, you know, cry <laughs> with the therapist near your transcript and not be tattled on in some way. Um, by the way, I was contacted by a therapist who has recently hired a psychologist, PhD psychologist recently hired by a medical school mm -hmm. to run a wellness program. And she contacted me for help because they didn't really give her any sort of guidelines on what she was supposed to do. And in fact, in some of the meetings that she was in, like the sentiment there was basically to pick out the depressed and suicidal students and kind of throw them under the bus, you know, like basically cleanse the school a little bit or something. It was really weird, you know, so I think it's interesting that she's asking me for help. Yeah. To run the program. Like, that's how clueless the schools are. I guess uh, the reason I, I asked that question that way is because my own experience has been when it comes to taking care of oneself. And although I think in general, physicians do decently well um, as a group, when it comes to addressing patients' uh, mental health, when it comes to a colleague, a fellow student's own mental health care or health care in general, sometimes there is a, I guess, an expectation that if you are having pain from perhaps a kidney stone or you feel that the, the stresses of, of life are exceeding your ability to deal with them, that if you go ask for help your colleagues, your administration, that there is going to be this getting thrown under the bus sort of uh, reaction. I guess I don't understand that disconnect. Why physicians can, I guess, respect the mental health of patients, but then when they themselves need to become one, colleagues and, and sometimes places of employment don't, I guess, extend that same courtesy. <laughs> Would you say that that's in general the, the case or that there are at least a lot of examples of that? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, and I think it's similar to, you know, the reaction of the student who fails the test and then throwing up and, and you know, kind of catastrophizing the whole thing, like their whole life is over. Yep. You know, when, when you understand that there's not enough residency slots, that starts to make sense, right? When you understand what is the likely outcome sometimes of some of these, what in isolation seems like a minor thing, like, okay, you failed a test, BFD, right? right. You know, you, you need to talk to a therapist because you're, you're having panic attacks. Like we all need to do that sometimes, you know, like we all are going to need to talk to somebody like, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that for a physician, 
you might have to declare that on future board licensing applications and hospital privilege forms. And for the rest of your life, you might need to check a box that says you sought mental health care on job applications, essentially, which is completely unfair. And it makes people nervous. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's this, this highly punitive environment that's like very 17th century you know we're in 2016 people should be able to get the care they need especially if you're already working in a hospital and presumably there's lots of people around that could for you like to be scared to get help when you're already surrounded by doctors everywhere and in a healthcare setting is very strange wouldn't you say absolutely if people wanted to learn more about your work uh, where would you point them to idealmedicalcare.org is my website and the blog is where most of the action happens there. So, um, by the way, I think yesterday I was on the phone with a, um, psychologist who I think he, he, he said that he used to work at a residential facility for substance abuse as a therapist before opening his own practice. And, um, he worked primarily with physicians and other dentists and other healthcare professionals. And, and after going through my blog and reading what I had on my site, he said, I find myself embarrassed by my naivete after spending time on your site. That is to say, it's much worse than I ever imagined. I find myself thinking that if you were to staff a case detailing the events and symptoms of a person in medical training, but leave out the detail that they were in medical training, any therapist in the country would say, yep, that's a serious trauma case. Wow, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, I, I guess the other thing I'd like to say is um, for anyone who leaves a review of this podcast episode on iTunes or other media where they listen to it and sends us a screenshot to info at insidetheboards.com, we will send them a copy of Physician Suicide Letters Answered by Dr. Pamela Weibel, um, which she's agreed to personalize it as well. Pamela, thanks. I, I appreciate your time. Oh, sure. And then just so people know, I'm available for email phone calls pretty much all the time for medical students. So if anyone wants to reach out, medical student or resident, um, just contact me again off that same idealmedicalcare.org website. And I promise I will respond sometimes within 30 seconds. <laughs> I will say you did respond pretty quick uh, when I asked if you'd uh, be willing to come speak. So I think that's awesome that you take the time to do that. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Head over to InsideTheBoards.com to sign up for our newsletter where you can stay up to date on our various podcast offerings, products, and high-yield review of products, and even leave us an audio message with your questions to help you succeed in medical school. You can always follow us on Twitter at BoardsInsider, Facebook.com slash InsideTheBoards, as well as on Instagram and Pinterest. As always, thank you so much for listening and for becoming involved with our community. We look forward to continuing to help you study smarter, not harder. When everything else around you is crumbling and the ceiling meets the floor the doubt inside your head tells you to turn around It's not worth it anymore But you feel you've given all
I'd like to thank the folks from Everyone Leaves who provided the music for this podcast. The song is Seasonal Effective. You can check them out at everyoneleavesband.bandcamp.com or facebook.com slash everyoneleavesband. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of Inside the Boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.